0: On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we're chatting with Tori Whitaker, the best-selling author of Millicent Glenn's Last Wish – She belongs to the Bourbon Women Association and Historical Novel Society. Her work has appeared in the Historical Novels Review and Bookmarks Magazine. Tori graduated from Indiana University and is an alum of the Yale Writers' Workshop and has recently retired from a national law firm where she served as chief marketing officer. She's been married for 45 happy years and currently resides outside Atlanta. A Matter of Happiness is out now, your second novel. Welcome, Tori, to Pop Fiction Women.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: By the way, I also went to the Yale Writers' Workshop. I did not know we had that in common. Yes. I went, I think maybe the second year they had it.
1: Is that right? I was there four years ago, I think.
0: I had such a great experience. It was such a, a great time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you want to tell us a little bit about A Matter of Happiness?
1: It is a book that goes back and forth between the past and present and it goes back to 1920s Prohibition Detroit. And it then goes to the Kentucky distilling industry of 2018. And we've got two characters who are complicated women. <laughs> they are um, intensely independent and they don't want anybody telling them how to live their lives and we see these two parallel stories even though they're almost a hundred years apart but they're connected by family and they're connected by a cherished heirloom which is a 1923 red sports car basically of the flapper era and it holds secrets that the modern day character Melanie will discover and ultimately lessons for her and her life too.
2: Yes, I love that. Yeah. So
1: let's start. The book
2: is about two complicated women, which is something that is near and dear to us on Pop Fiction Women. We do put women front and center. And you have created these two, as you said, fiercely independent women, um, Melanie and her great, great, great aunt, Violet, and... Um, And it is across decades and generations and told in their alternating points of view. So we definitely want to talk about each of them and we'll get to that. But even before that, just how did they each come to you as a writer? Did one of them come first? And did you always know it would be told from these alternating points of view?
1: That's an interesting question. The car is what really came first for me. Ah. And so I guess... It would have been Violet who came to mind first uh, in the historical timeline. My husband does, in his semi-retirement, some automotive restorations of classic cars from the 1930s and so forth. And Mm -hmm. and for a long time, even before I wrote my first book, I thought, what if there was this old 100-year-old car stored away someplace and somebody found something in it? And that was the colonel. So uh, I knew I wanted to go back to 1920s and the Jordan MX Playboy, which is the name of the car, had this advertising campaign in 1923 that revolutionized automotive advertising forever. It was directed right to young independent women and it talked about not the features of the car, but the emotions and everything. And in that uh, one particular ad that I found, it said, that women want the wild and the tame. And it was really this ad that kind of drove me to create Violet. Um, essentially, she's the evolving flapper who is just the kind of woman who's going to want to buy this car. And, and that was an impetus for creating her character.
0: Mm. Oh, I love hearing about the seed of that of the story. So we want to talk about Violet. Uh, Some more. Her perspective starts the novel in 1921. And she defers to no one. She desires to be a modern, independent woman, as you've said, who will one day make her own decisions. She's certainly ahead of her time living a life of adventure in Detroit, frequenting uh, speakeasies and falling in love. She lived until 103. And we learned that yeah. even in her mid-90s, she was slow but never boring, which is right. perfect. Again, certainly complicated woman for any generation. So tell us more about your development of Violet after you knew she would be someone who this car was targeted for, how did you find out who she was and what story she had to tell?
1: I really had to do was research flappers of the jazz age. And Mm -hmm. it was so fascinating to me to learn that they didn't just come about when say Prohibition hit or the nineteen Roaring twenties, whatever. Um, they evolved. And her character is very much one of these. Uh, As a young girl, she would have been exposed to silent movies where these heroines of the silent screen, these starlets were young and single and ambitious and adventurous and daring and always getting themselves into things they had to try to find their ways out Mm -hmm. of. And um, this spurred in young girls this spirit initially. And also the things they read, uh, they didn't just read Pollyanna, you know, they read, um, boys books, Treasure like Island. Tre- and, yeah. and, and they yeah. read about yeah. Peter yeah. Pan, who on the stage yeah. during their time was played by a woman and all about flying off to never, never land and everything. And, and so they had this little bit of spirit of adventure. Then by the time they're teenagers, The world goes to war and some people don't come back. And then the Spanish flu hits with the pandemic and some people don't survive. So by the time they're getting the vote in 1920, these young women already have this, this burning need for independence. They want to live while they can because they might not make it. People might not make it. And so um, along with the jazz music and the automotive culture, they, they were wild for their cars that represented freedom. And um, that Violet is that person. She evolves yeah. into that person. Now, what we know from the Jazz Age looking back is, though, it's not all fun and game. So there's, um, there's some things that she has to deal with that uh, it could be a spoiler. But one of the quotes of the book I love most is, though, Candy bars may rain from the sky. Life will not always be sweet. Mm. And um, she has to learn that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Love that. And you also give us Melanie. Um, You know, we find out right away about her that she has an ex fiance, that she's fighting for a promotion at her Kentucky bourbon distillery and trying to make her mother proud of her all in the process, something we deeply relate to over here. Um, but, you know, also from her grape, Aunt Violet, as she calls her, she is bequeathed this car that we're talking about, this this symbol. Um, and there is this secret compartment with the journal that you that you reference, and there's this intriguing message. Take from this story what you will, Melanie, and you can bury the rest. So ultimately, you know, she has to uncover things about Violet's past, but also about herself in the process. And so it's another thing we sort of right. love, um, where secrets, first of all, but then also, you know, unraveling the secrets, what, what the character learns about um, herself. And so tell us a little bit more about the development of Melanie and the growth or arc that you wanted her character to go on.
1: Well, one thing that definitely makes Melanie a complicated woman is what you alluded to about her mother pressuring her. And so she's got some mother-daughter issues going on. Her mother had some pressure put on her, too, uh, as Mm -hmm. a young woman um, Mm -hmm. from family. So it kind of goes downhill, right? But Melanie, she's in the bourbon industry, which Violet had been in before, Mm -hmm. before Violet left for Detroit during Prohibition. And so she's got that connection with family, and um, they have this real bond, her and her great Aunt Violet, when she's Mm -hmm. a little girl and Mm -hmm. and Violet's like a hundred years old. And and, um, so that adds this other layer of complexity to her, I think, um, that opens her up to learning the lessons that Violet will impart. When, when Violet says, take from this story what you will, she really means that she's going to bear it all really. Mm -hmm. And and nobody, I mean, nobody in the family, Melanie and her mother, nobody had a clue of Violet's young, wild days Mm -hmm. in Detroit and, um, you know, with men or anything else. And so, and you, you know, booze and, and all those things, Mm -hmm. but smoking, the things the women did then that were shocking and. So she learns all that, but I think the main thing she's going to take away from it is um, to, yes, seek adventures, seek love, and allow yourself to be loved. And um, you can choose your happiness, basically. Even mm-hmm. if you're on a one particular road, no pun intended, it doesn't mean that you can't make a decision for your life to change, whether it's with with her fiancé or, or later in her career. Women, and this is something I fervently believe, and I think is a big takeaway, women can choose. They can choose what they want.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Yeah.
1: no,
2: that is a big theme. And I love how it's it's through both their storylines. It's something that um, even though generations apart, they're both wrestling with the same issue, which on the one Mm -hmm. hand, I'm like, Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, Did we'll we always right? all be yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. Can we ever get it right? But, but maybe there is no right. I mean, meaning that what we see through this is that though, you know, time and circumstances may differ, it is something that I think is very relatable that we're all seeking and, and struggling with. So I, it sounds like that's, it's a theme that, you know, sort of we like to talk about and it sounds like was a big takeaway that you hoped would come out of the book as well.
1: Yeah. And, and it came out even more so maybe than I predicted because readers are already telling me how it resonates with them that things are still somewhat the same for women, whether it's with work relationships Mm -hmm. or love relationships or with their girlfriends, uh, with their family. These things happened a hundred years ago and they're happening now and it's universal.
0: Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, all of this is making me think of my grandmother. my my paternal grandmother passed away this year. She was ninety two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, my maternal grandmother is still with us, and I have a daughter. So we have four generations of women yes. today that in my family that I'll be seeing this week for Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm just very obsessed. It's probably not surprising that I'm very obsessed with intergenerational stories what gets passed down, um, what is story, what is genetics, what do we take on because it resonates with us, no matter, you know, my brother and I hear the same stories and we take away different things. And so I'm obsessed with intergenerational stories, which this is one. And I was Mm -hmm. curious, what about that are you interested in enough to tell a story like this?
1: Oh, I love so much that that speaks to you. I was born the fifth living generation of my family. And then years later, when my grandchildren were born, we had five living generations again, which is really rare. Yeah. And so for me, um, even in my first book, which was also a multi-generational story, it, it just comes so naturally to me. I, I don't even like necessarily yeah. intend for it to be five generations in the story, but it just happens. And, um, it just feels so right to me to think that someone from a prior generation is leaving lessons for the next generation, and and um, I like to think of Melanie in years to come um, beyond the scope of this book and, and where she'll be and um, the future generations of that family too. Um, it just it's just part of me so much. Yeah. That It just kind of comes out and then I read it and I'm realizing, well, here I am writing another (laughs) multi-generational (laughs) book.
0: I understand. I mean, I completely different angles. Yeah. I went to college with both of my great grandmothers, great grandmothers still alive. And Mm -hmm. I, that was the first time I would tell people, Oh, my great grandmother. and, And actually one of my great grandmothers passed away sophomore year. And I was upset and telling them that my great grandmother died. And People were like, you have a great grandmother? I was like, actually, I have two. but And the other one didn't die until I was done with law school. So, yeah, I, I, I understand that feeling where you just think this is just part of my life. I don't even think of it as something odd. And then it's other people reflecting it back to you where you go, oh, okay. Not everybody has that.
1: When I was a little girl, like two or three years old, one of my great grandmothers, I remember my mom saying, this is great grandma. This is great. Grandma was my paternal side. And, mm-hmm. and, and it just came out, grape, grandma. And that's all that would come out. And um, that, I hadn't thought about that in years, I'll be honest. And okay. next thing you know, it's on chapter one, I've got grape, Aunt <laughs> Violet. It just hit yeah. me and I used it. And that's, that's where that came from.
0: The writer's subconscious. The, right, yeah, I was just mm, going to
1: say
2: that. Yeah. The writer's subconscious. Even what you're saying about not yeah. realizing that you keep writing about multi-generational, you know, Corinne knows this. We talk to so many authors who have very similar experiences to you that uh, they just didn't even know that all their books dealt with the same theme or something just came out on the page and they realized later, oh, geez, I know where that came from. You know, it's just...
0: My life. It's in you. In, yes. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I... Um, always love a quote at the beginning of a novel. I'm a person that, you know, kept journals as a kid of quotations that I loved. And so, um, oh, well, so, and I I wanted to ask you then, of course, about this F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that, that starts your novel from the short story that he wrote, I think in 1921, Bernice Bob's Her Hair. Yes. And the quote is, at 18, our convictions are hills from which we look at 45, they are caves in which we hide. Mm -hmm. So I have my own thoughts on this quote. I love the quote, but I, I of course, want to hear what what spoke to you about it and and why you chose to start the novel with that.
1: Well, I don't think I've mentioned this since we've been on, but the Jordan automobile that I use in the book, and, and it's actually the real car on the cover of my book too, mm-hmm. is um, named the the Jordan MX Playboy. But it was so popular with flappers and everything that F. Scott Fitzgerald named Jordan yes. Baker after the car mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in The Great Gatsby. And that's mm-hmm. where her name came from. And uh, so I thought, well, another little nod to Um, Fitzgerald maybe here, but I had read that short story some years ago and it stuck with me And it. And that, that scene and Bernice Bob's her hair also inspired one of the scenes in my book where Violet and her friend go to the barbershop, which you understand Mm -hmm. is the men's domain. And it's in the time it was very unusual for a young woman to go into a barbershop and get her haircut, um, get it all bobbed off. And, um, and I, and I, thought about that short story as I was writing that scene, um, very particular to, to, Violet's experience. And, um, the other thing about that is that, um, that quote is sort of, I think, Violet's story. And this may be how, how you're perceiving it is here. She is this young thing. And then, mm-hmm. and then, you know, she's older, maybe older than 40 or 45, but right. um, then you know she's sort of hiding these stories that she has, and so I thought mm-hmm. it was very appropriate. But I'll tell you, I haven't told anybody this. But on that mm-hmm. page where I had that quote, I actually had a second quote too that we couldn't get rights to use, and mm-hmm. and it was it was going to be in my mind connecting that prologue, which is 1920s prologue, mm-hmm. with the first modern day chapter, and and sort of connecting it. And the second quote was. And I, if I can remember it um, precisely, I don't know, but it's out of Sex in the City, and it's, it's oh. where, where Carrie says something like, um, "I'd rather be somebody's shot of whiskey than everybody's cup of tea."
0: Oh, I yeah, really wanted to do like
1: that, that so badly that, that kind of connected the the uh, Fitzgerald to to something yeah. more modern. Um, but I, I couldn't make that happen.
2: I love yes, that oh yeah, because Fitzgerald is outside of. Copyright laws, right? Or, or, or yep. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yes. got, got a couple right. lawyers on the phone. But yes. yeah, I was like, that's <laughs> why you can use that versus sex in the city, yeah. right? It's so yes. already in the public domain. Yeah, But that would have been a good one. But yeah, this was great too.
0: Yeah, but it does, I think the whole story is infused yeah. with that idea of I would rather be, and, and that's a mantra of I'm Kate and I, I mean, we just, I'm not worried about everyone being everyone's cup of tea. I'd rather be someone's shot of whiskey. I love that. Awesome.
1: Um, Did yeah. you have a different uh, insight into that quote too?
2: No, it's similar to what you said, but you know, just this idea of when you're young, you know, the the things you hold, uh, your convictions, whatever they do, they sort of lift you up, and you you you're up on this hill. And then I think in midlife, some of it either gets lost, or it's something that you're you're again not expressing. Uh, either sometimes unintentionally, and so I don't know. If, and so you you feel as if you're now hiding these parts of yourself again. I, sometimes I think it's not on purpose, and oftentimes recently, Corinne knows this. Like I'll just be reminded of younger me, either through journals or things we're discussing, and I'm like, where did that person go? You know, and I see her up on the hill with these convictions, and I'm like, why is she now in the cave? Like where where did that go? So oh. I don't know. It was very oh, midlife I crisis-y that. to me. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, but I, like love, I love to you think about that
1: it.
0: Yes. I love that. Well, that brings me perfectly to my next question. It, mm-hmm. Instead of a midlife crisis, is, a, is really about second acts. And we love to talk about second acts in fiction and in real life. And as Kate already mentioned, we're both lawyers who have many other side interests and, and side hustles. And so this idea that, You know, you're just one thing obviously doesn't appeal to us. And you worked, as I said, in your bio for a long time as a chief marketing officer in a law firm. And then you decided to publish a book Mm -hmm. later in a a second act part of your life. What Mm -hmm. prompted that? Did you always want to be a a writer? Was it something that just kind of came to you when you had the time and space to do it? I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Oh, cool. Cool. I actually came to history before I came to writing. I I fell in love with history, I think, at five years old, when my grandparents took me to a museum. And I I remember standing in front of a Ford Model T even then. And then by fifth grade, my family was having me plan the vacations. to Not Disneyland, but like Jamestown, Virginia. (laughs) Places I wanted to go. And... I knew uh, I loved writing probably when I was fourteen, and I pursued journalism courses and, and English courses and stuff through college. But I guess I was twenty-seven when I first thought to myself, "I want to write a book someday." And by then, I was already married, had two boys, and it took me another twenty years to get that done. I, I didn't even start till I was in my 40s and and empty nesting they'd both gone off to college and that's when I started writing um at the same time I was working at the law firm which as you know is a very demanding uh, mm-hmm. role um with a national law firm with lots of offices and stuff and um but I had lots of PTO time by then <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's how I would use it uh, my husband and I would do little research trips before covid and um I would write. I would take a week off and just write 12 or 14 hours a day. I'd get in this real zone. I would be very prepared going in. I would have my outline. I would know what my goals were. And then the rest of the time, I would write in the weekends or at night and um, revise and so forth. And I had two books that I wrote that didn't even get published, and I just kept going. Um, I don't know what really drove me. I think working with lawyers that many years Mm. kind of drove me to, um, (laughs) yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) no, we're going to come back to astrology. I'm going (laughs) to guess that's part of it too. Yeah. Uh,
1: You know, not give up. And so that Mm -hmm. third one was the charm, I suppose. And I think a lot of people, it's not that uncommon that an author has that practice novel in the drawer. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. But it was the history that drove me first. I love that.
2: I love that. Yeah. So that kind of also brings me to my next question, which is: you know, your acknowledgments mention that you studied more than 100 books in researching this novel, which is staggering, uh, but also not surprising when you read it and see the vivid detail with which you. Describes so many things. We've already talked about the car, but um, bourbon, uh, 1920s, prohibition days. I mean, just so much more. The richness of the details. I mean, your research clearly comes through in that, and your love of history. It seems um, so. Yeah, you know, you're welcome. So I, I do want to hear more about this, the the research process, and how that informed your writing. Cause it's saying intense. Well,
1: when I was researching for this book, it, most of it was going on during COVID. And so it did require a lot of reading. Um, but I love it so much. I mean, it's, it's, I'm one of those authors. It's hard to turn that off and, and, and stop. Although I'm researching through the whole book too. But I mean, I do a, a lot before I even start writing. And um, there were a lot of online sources too everything from real flappers doing real dances on little silent film things that I could get on YouTube to dissertations. Uh, I had the great fortune of having spent 10 years in Detroit already. So I had this with my husband in the automotive industry and I worked at downtown too there. I had a real sense of place, even though it was a hundred years later, I guess, but I had a heart for it. It wasn't like Detroit was cold to me. And then also we had toured the bourbon trail 10 years ago too. And my husband's been a big bourbon drinker for a long time. And over the years I, I've gotten, um, used to it. And I'm actually to a point now where I just really enjoy it. I, I I love to go out and get a cocktail and I'll get, a bourbon cocktail now more often than I get the Cosmo, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. um, So I had some experience with that, but still just um, everything from women in the bourbon industry of the 1800s to to post-repeal to books on Detroit's immigration. I mean, just there was just so much. Um, but I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I'm already researching for my next book, and um, it's just I, I love doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, you have already said the history brought yeah, you there, the I and mean, it makes mm-hmm. sense. It's all tracking. But but obviously, research is a big part of your writing process, and you love that part. Can you tell us anything else about your writing process? And was anything different from book one, book two, to book two? Are you a pantser, a plotter? Do you, you know, like to get a lot of feedback? Do you keep it really close to your vest? We'd love to hear anything you want to share.
1: Oh, those are all good
0: questions.
1: (laughs) You know, in the first two books I wrote that didn't get published, I did not get a lot of feedback. I I didn't have a critique group. I didn't go to workshops. I mean, you know, from being in the Yale uh, workshop uh, setting. And I I did a couple others locally with... um, New York Times best-selling author who teaches here, and that was just such an eye-opening experience, not just to have them read my work, but in reading other people's manuscripts and critiquing them, you learn so much from doing that, too. So that's a big thing. I get a lot of feedback now. Um, I got out of a course six years ago. And a couple other historical fiction writers were in there and we still meet once a month and it's been six years. Mm-hmm. And even if it's mm-hmm. virtually, it. we might, we might've missed three months over the whole six years. And, um, it, it really bonds you to somebody when you, um, when you, when, when you let down those filters of having someone else see your work and in those infancy stages, um, and yet it's just so helpful. So that was great. Uh, My process with my books in particular, both being dual timelines, is unlike some people who will write the whole historical thread and then write the whole modern narrative, and there are some authors that do it that way, and there's others that go straight through. Like if it's one chapter, one chapter, one chapter, one chapter in each time period, they're just straight through. I'm a hybrid. I like to stay in a time period for three or four chapters while I'm in that zone. So I, I might write three or four of Melanies in the modern day and three or four of Violets and then weave those together and then move on. So I'm this hybrid where I go straight mm. through that way. But when, um, when the book is almost where I think it needs to be, I'll read each timeline through by itself because
0: mm.
1: both timelines have to have their own mini- arcs, little arcs. miniature arcs of of, this, of the characters, but then the book as a whole has mm-hmm. a whole arc too. Yeah. So it's, um, it's daunting sometimes, especially if you make a change in one timeline oh, and it's yes. like, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, yeah. you try to figure out how to integrate that into the modern timeline. And I mean, um, uh, it, it's it's a difficult thing to do, but I, I love reading dual timeline books. And um, yeah. so far that. I haven't given up on that either. It is <laughs> uh, different from my, not from my first debut novel is that one had one main character who was in her nineties mm-hmm. in one time period and in her twenties uh, and thirties at post world war two period. And so she went back and forth telling her story while she was still alive. In this case, we've got two complete separate protagonists mm. in the two stories, and that added some difficulty, I think. yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, you're upping your degree of difficulty. How about <laughs> for your third? Can you share anything about that? i you mentioned that, and was it similar format? You're sticking with your dual
1: timelines. Well, I if you think know. <laughs> that readers will expect to have a little bit of a dual timeline from me. Um, I'm envisioning maybe something a little different. Um, maybe not so far in between the timelines. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- I- I'm just now starting to outline a little bit. I haven't started mm-hmm. writing yet. And, and uh, another thing about me having this hybrid sort of writing style, and I am a, a, a plotter to, to that mm-hmm. question. I um, mm-hmm. I write an outline but I'm very very open to changing the outline. Uh, you know, if you're taking a trip and you've got this detour, maybe there's something you don't know about. and You go off and see it or you get stranded here and you, get, you know there's all kinds of detours you could have on a trip. And and that certainly happens with my writing and I and I'm open to those and I I uh, I embrace them as I get to know the characters better through the initial drafts especially. I'm open to change. But I do have to have an outline where, okay, I'm marking off chapter six, I'm marking off chapter seven, I'm marking off chapter eight. Mm-hmm. I'm just a planner that way. <laughs> so with this next book I'm working on now, I'm just beginning to outline. And I've already almost started writing a whole different book that I, I came to figure out about 12 books in or 12 research books in. I'm um, a whole documentary series that... Mm, There's a story here, but I'm not ready to write this one yet. So, um, so I've started, uh, researching a a, a few months into researching this other idea that surrounds artwork in some ways, but I'll say, but all that, it could be this book. comes out being something completely, totally different when it comes Mm -hmm. out. That's where my head is now. And, um, for what it's worth, I see a title, I see a cover which oh. I think it's the earliest time for me seeing those in the process. So I'm hoping that's a good sign.
2: Yeah. Do you always see a cover and a no. title? This in, it interests me.
1: In your well, head? with uh, a matter of happiness. Oh my gosh, we we went through. Well, my first title for that, my first working title was Distillery Girls,
0: mm. and they <laughs>
1: yeah. wanted something, and the editors wanted something more sophisticated. They said, and and over the course of the revisions and everything. I mean, we, I mean, had at least 40 titles that wow. we threw out there.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah.
1: And, and, and also when I'm thinking of titles, sometimes I find that somebody else has already used it. So I can't use it. And, mm-hmm. and um, it was hard coming up with this title. But when I finally did think of a matter of happiness, it just seemed to fit. And everybody liked it because it really is what the women in this story are looking for.
0: Their own
1: happiness as they define it for themselves. And so I liked it. And, um, but I didn't see the cover early on. I I, I will admit, I did not see the cover early on. The publisher gave me four cover designs, um, that we could kind of play with or, or whatever. And I really liked this one. I liked one of the other ones really well too. But, but they made it clear to me, they wanted, they, they really were wanting the one with the car. Yeah. Like the editors. Okay. And everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm like, okay, well, if we're going to do the one with the car, we got to have the real car. Uh, initially it looked very much, almost exactly like this cover with the art deco border and the red and the, the flapper in her black and white, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. but they had a different car that the average person would never know the difference. But mm, I was able to get rights to use the real 1923 Jordan M. Oh, play good. Variant. That yeah. was important to me. If the car car's going to be on there. It's got to be the real one.
2: Yes. Yeah. So. Well, now that we know that the car was the seed for this whole story, it, it just makes sense. Perfect. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um. So there's something we ask all our authors, Corinne alluded to it earlier, um, about astrology. And I saw on your website, a little hint, and perhaps a happy birthday is in order. We are somewhere around your birthday, because you put every few years, my birthday lands on Thanksgiving Day. So we're close. Um, it's
1: tomorrow. Oh. I'm right into Sagittarius.
2: Yes. yes i was just gonna say so that makes you a sagittarius yes. another fire sign we are leo and aries here
1: mm-hmm. um
2: so we always ask our authors uh if they relate to their sign being a sagittarius oh, yes
1: i do the archer you know with the mm-hmm. uh, kind of cute I, I like to think of the cupid with the arrow
0: and oh, the oh yes. nice
1: um, there's mm-hmm. some other qualities i have um like I've read that the sign people can be direct and um, say things very sort of not intending to hurt somebody's feelings or something, but someone can misinterpret like it, when they're just being Clear. direct. Yes. You know, I have to, like, uh, you know, watch what I'm saying or something like that. I like being sort of on the cusp.
0: Yeah. yeah. I yep. thought of it earlier when you said that you don't know why you didn't give up. It didn't even sound like it was an option for you to give up when you had a, a, a kind of a practice novel. And I thought that sounded very Sagittarius. The fire, the fire was lit in you, and you weren't going to stop until oh, you could see it. Oh,
1: uh, good. Okay. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: <laughs> so we can't also let you leave. Yes, yes. yes, without asking what you're loving right now. We we get such great recommendations from authors of books they're reading, shows they're watching, podcasts you're listening to, anything you're sort of obsessed with that then we might want to be obsessed with.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, um, I thought about a couple books I would share that have what I consider complicated women. Oh, nice. Mm,
0: Perfect. And one
1: of them is Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle. Mm-hmm. And it is a dual timeline story that came out in the last year and also goes back to the 1920s and beyond. But it's about a, a woman who as a child is on um, a ship, um, like a, 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 not, not the Titanic, but that kind of a ship. Um, and it, basically the ship is lost and she becomes an orphan and, so she's going to have a complicated life from early on, but she is yearns to be a pilot in the era of like, um, you know, the first early 1920s women's pilots. And she, she flies around the world. And then in the modern day, there's this character named Hadley who is a movie star and she's got all kinds of personal problems and she's very complicated. And, she gets this role of a lifetime to play this, this woman who had been the aviatrix or whatever they call them that, um, had been lost, had, had gone around the world and and never found again. So, um, that's one I had. I just love, I mean, the language the author uses is amazing. And then there is beautiful little fools by Jillian Cantor, which also came out earlier this year. And, it is a story of the great Gatsby told from the women's perspectives. And so, you know, from the get go, mm. they're going to be complicated. Yes, um, We've got Daisy and Jordan. I got it right here. Others. Oh, yes. And I yeah. love that cover so much. Yes. And that, and title. that title. Talk the about a good cover title. Yeah. Ever. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, two books about complicated women. Yeah. Um, oh, I love I watch it. it on TV. Let's see. Well Yellowstone of course. I guess that qualifies, right? Yes. Guess, well, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, I love the 1883. I can't wait oh. for the next version to come out. It's called 1923. The same year as my book in this car. Oh, I can't that's wait fun. To see that? Perfect.
2: I
0: love that. All right. Serendipity. So you even yes. get your
2: historical fix in TV as
1: well. So there's yes. there's Excellent. Yes. And my husband loves all that stuff too. Oh, that's oh, perfect.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Uh, tell people where they can find you. We're asking now, again, now that Twitter is uh, <laughs> in yeah. its... Yeah. Um, you
1: can find everything on com. Yeah. There's links mm-hmm. to all my social media and all of the places where the book can be found and and as you know, some little fun facts about me. Just
2: going to say, and yeah. fun facts, because they're more so like than just about your birthday. That's where I found that, right. though. I love the fun facts, actually. Yes, so. we do love
1: Good. that.
0: Good. Well, A Matter of Happiness is out now. Everyone should grab their copy. And Tori, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. I so enjoyed talking with you both. Good. Thank oh, you for thank having you. me. Thank you.